to This Week in the Ancient Near East, a podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as always, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor, Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. Their famous buttercream pound cake recipe improves on the 1968 Pillsbury Bake Off winners by using two pounds of butter instead of only one. Today we're discussing an especially provocative new claim that a 10th century BCE figurine head found at a site southwest of Jerusalem is actually a representation of Yahweh, the God of Judah. That is to say, literally the face of God. But did people in the past depict God with a face? More to the point, how do we know? Do these things come labeled? So here's the question. Did anyone ever find anything in an excavation that was labeled? JP? It would have helped. <laughs> it couldn't hurt. It would be nice if things were labeled. But uh, no, things aren't labeled. And archaeologists, given the wherewithal, will argue about the the most minute things, the most unimportant and minute things, given a chance. I found one thing. Um, it was it, it was actually a little figurine I found at, at Tel Dor. I think it was the, the summer after you were there in 1980. Um, it was buried between these two walls, a little Persian birthing figurine, and I smacked it and broke it in half but it wasn't labeled. It got labeled after it went to the Israel Museum. And I used to take the kids there and show it and say, see that? That thing with the label, your father broke that thing. <laughs> and they got a big kick out of that when they were younger, at least. I don't know. But, but that's not what you meant by labeled. I, you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just felt the need to clarify that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, In case if our listeners were... We're puzzling on that issue. Well, yeah. Well, at least you call them listeners instead of listener. Listen, <laughs> we're coming through. Anything that nobody I didn't understand. what their pronouns are. So. <laughs> anything that people didn't understand was labeled as cultic. And as far as I can tell, that hasn't changed a bit. And whenever we find these figurines or enigmatic inscriptions, you know, there's always sort of one group of people who want to make it cultic and religious and understand religion. And the other people, the other side who, you know, just want to not even really deal with it or address it in any way. And both of these positions are a little bit problematic. And you sort of find both of these positions represented here. One, one position is these are, these are figurines of Yahweh. And oh, isn't that amazing? And it's incredible. And we've never found them. And this is what they must be. And these are the reasons why. And on and on and on. So on the one side, you actually have you know, corporeal representations of, of the God Yahweh, he who should not even be named, let alone depicted. And then on the other hand, you have a bunch of scholars saying, no, that's, that's nonsense. 
but, but we don't even want to use our names in the Times of Israel article. Like, God forbid we should even put our name on saying that this is something that we don't think is so. And, and then you have this other article also in, in Bar that talks about how this is the wrong interpretation. But, you know, it's a, it, everything is gray, right? Everything in the world is gray. So, yeah, I mean, are, are they, is, it, is this a figurine of Yahweh? Could be. Doesn't have to be. But to think that it's out of the realm of possibility is kind of, you know, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Right. There's, there's a bunch of things going on here. So there's the, these various figurines being pulled from a variety of contexts, which uh, the excavator of one site is saying these do represent Yahweh for reasons that we can talk about. And then there's, and, and whether or not they do, um, and there's then, then the bunch of scholars who object to that interpretation, but which, whichever way you go on those specific figurines, there's the larger question of depictions of Yahweh or depictions of the deity, um, a deity in this part of the world. And that's a whole other interesting conversation, which I think is the second half of the articles that we're referring to this, this um, thing that's been labeled as the, the face of God, one of these new newly excavated figurines. Well, we should probably clarify for the sake of our listener, um, <laughs> <laughs> whoever he, she, or, or they are, that, that we're, we're talking about a very small number of, of uh, heads of figurines. They're about two inches, not even right. tall. Right, um, so no, look, can we stop there for a minute? Because that's, really, that's a really important piece of information, right? And this goes to this goes to the study of the Southern Levant writ large, which is that the study of the Southern Levant is writ small, right? <laughs> now here we have these two-inch heads. I mean, the, the, they're lucky they even found them, right? They could have been easily missed. We have these two-inch heads. And, and people are creating this huge furor over, is this the head of God? Is this the face of God? Because if it is the face of God, then these people really didn't think much of God, didn't think much of their religion, didn't think much of themselves. They couldn't have made it four inches. They couldn't have made it, you know, 10 inches. They couldn't have made this thing substantial. All right, I'll stop there because you were in the middle of a nice, very nice and orderly <laughs> program. Well, you, raise an, you raise an interesting... It's an interesting point. These are little clay blobs in, onto which a little face is sort of pinched and <laughs> portions that are applied. And they've got identifiable noses, at least one of them does. And we should clarify, again, that one is from one site, um, Kiafa, and the, other is, uh, the others are from a nearby site a few kilometers to the east called Moza where there's an actual temple-like structure and we can we can become exercised about how to how to identify temples from from other structures but they're all pretty they're all pretty crude they're they are very tiny they've got noses they've got little dots for eyes the guys have dots around their chins for for beards at least one of them does the the godlike one from uh, kiafa seems to have a number of protuberances from from the head making him look like i don't know more much more alien like than than i would perhaps like and um and there are these horse 
horse ridden components of the figurines kind of nearby some of these. Right, and, and of course also part of this whole thing is, is that several of the examples are from a collection without any provenience. Right. And, and, that's, and that sort of adds a whole other dimension because right. it, it's, it's one thing to find figurines. It's another thing to talk about the function and the determination of who the figurines represent. Those are all important. Those all have to be done. Anything we find in an excavation, you know, we've got to account for, etc. But then to throw these other two things that are clearly outside of the kind of, you know, material that we routinely study and include, you know, that then takes this whole thing in another direction, right? It's like, it's like there are enough directions to begin with if we just stuck to the straight archaeology. But now we're bringing in unprovenienced objects. We don't know where they came from. We don't know when they were made. You know, and now you start speculating wildly. Oh, these look 10th century. Oh, they possibly come from the, the Hebron Hills. And, and it's like, yeah, they might. But honestly, we really have no idea. Right. And, and by adding that in, you, you put in another layer of nonsense to this already kind of well, you, I'm sorry, let me no, just finish. No, go ahead. This discussion also should be mentioned is taking place in the in the pages of BAR, Biblical Archaeology Review, which is fine. BAR is a great magazine. It serves a great purpose. It does a lot of good for the field and all of that stuff. But this isn't being held in a scholarly journal. So that already says something. You know, and so we're dealing with a level of sensationalism and you know, but, but where would we be without sensationalism? Where well, would where would archaeology generally and Southern Levantine slash nay biblical archaeology be without sensationalism? We'd be absolutely we'd be up a creek if we didn't yeah. have if and, and if we didn't have individuals who had the imagination to take <laughs> two, two inch blobs of, of clay with sort of faces on it and, and, and be able to spin a narrative that connects, you know, the blob of clay with <clears throat> other figurines and other objects and with biblical verses and with other objects that are completely unrelated from other places and turn it into, I don't think a particularly persuasive kind of narrative, but it's certainly an exciting and intriguing narrative that grabs people's attention. And, you know, so there's, there's, the, you got the supply side and you have the demand side. And right. It's Absolutely. And I think that one of the, one of the many interesting things about all this and all the problems is so BAR is not a peer review journal, which is, as you pointed out, not a scholarly journal because you don't have that element of checks and balances. And um, yet one of the other interesting things is most academics, most archeologists will not publish unprovenanced artifacts. And one thing that made it difficult to read these articles is when we're talking about the couple of unprovenanced artifacts, even BAR didn't publish pictures of them. And I had to go elsewhere to find a picture of one of them and I couldn't find a picture of the other. And the one, the picture that I found made things a little bit clearer but also was showed, I, I thought it was a fascinating image. Um, 
I think that on that horse and rider figurine, the rider looks like an octopus, um, which, uh, well, I sent you the link. I, I hope you guys yeah. agree that he looks like an octopus, which um, doesn't look, although I want to speak about his face, which looks very much in the Canaanite Israelite tradition of art, um, the body, um, my first thought was, well, this must be a forgery. This must be a fake because I've never seen anything that looks quite like the body, the arms and the legs of this, this rider. So that's one of the problems with unprovenance artifacts that they may, they may be faked. I don't know if this one is because I only saw oh, but, but let's clarify that, that the core objects that we're talking about, <clears throat> the core, I think they're four figurine heads. They came from um, controlled excavations okay well-excavated um, situations, you know exactly where, where they come from. And that's, and that's great. And it's, I think it's, in a, and it's a very controversial issue generally about how to use um, you know, unprovenanced artifacts from earlier excavations or certainly from looted sites in, in, in a comparative sense, because you know, now the trend is to put an asterisk basically Next to next to everyone, and you know that's that's fair, I guess. But <clears throat> the the objects the objects themselves are, you know, are very simple. They're very petite, and they are they're they're the subject of a, a you know escalating speculations and and comparisons. But that's how it works. Where where would we be without these kinds of you know, comparisons and literary allusions and the, the you know, the rider and <clears throat> the, the horse and rider figurines that uh, maybe, you know, they're biblical references to, to God riding, riding on a horse and then the clouds and this and, and that. Um, but, you know, is this any way to archaeology? Right. Well, to me, in many respects, it, it really reflects a step backwards. This is the classic kind of biblical archaeology that, that we were instructed to pay no attention to. This was the, you know, this, this very much smacks of, you know, biblical archaeologists circa 1965 under the aegis of G. Ernest Wright. And, or 1945 under the aegis of, 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 you know, of Albright. Albright. Right. And, and, and so, Part of our DNA is, is very much very much put all that kind of thing aside. I mean, I can only I can speak for you and me, Alex, because we sort of came <laughs> through at the same time. And you know, we were demonstrably told never ever to do anything like this. And that was really driven into us. Uh, it's it's sensationalist, is it it's entertaining. I guess it generates interest. I don't, I, I'm not so sure about that because the interest for all things archeology span in Israel has a, you know, that, that has a very clear public forum. And so you can give that group that's already interested in all this stuff, you can give them anything. And I don't say that pejoratively, I say that, you know, realistically. If you give them good quality analysis, careful quality analysis, they'll be as appreciative of this kind of thing. Right. Of this kind of pure speculation, pure rampant wild speculation, which I, which, yeah, there's certainly a place for it. But 
it doesn't, I, I don't this, think this it's- This is the place for it. The pages of VAR is exactly the right place for it. I do think the speculation went a little bit awry and um, those who criticize, those scholars who criticized the, the original article, I think explained uh, through- They're just killjoys, um, what, what they are. Oh, they're killjoys. Right. Well, no, but they explained why why there's some problematic issues with how the original writer of the article um, thought about the various heads and horses. Who, he said that the two heads and the two um, horses uh, found at the site of Moza went together and made up two, um, instead of being four separate pieces, were possibly originally only two figurines, one rider for each horse. And they, they, they showed why that's probably not the case. Um, has to do with proportion and other things of the heads versus the horses and some other issues as well. So I think there are definitely problems with the uh, particulars of this argument, um, but the idea of going a little bit beyond, I, I think the problem with the type of archeology span that you were just describing JP is, and the way you were both and me too, um, trained to abandon the older um, biblical references. I think the problem with it is no one is dares to actually bring up the biblical references anymore. So this well, is a no, 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 not anymore. No, now not people anymore. Have now it's totally standard. Yeah, no, no, no. For the, uh, come on, for the last ten years, biblical archaeology has made a huge comeback. Right. True. And there is a huge so, group of us in the field who have a very, very specific training, and that training is. Hebrew Bible, archaeology, Iron Age 2. Yeah. Just do the Iron Age 2, 10th century down to 586. That's all, that's all this segment does, and they do it with the Bible, and it's all about the okay. Bible. And okay. it's, as if, it's as if the Iron Age 1 faintly exists, but the LB and the MB and the EB, that stuff, for all intents and purposes, never existed. And the Persian period, that also never existed. And well, that's we, a very interesting kind of end result to all of this. Right. Extraordinary specialization that is, right. you know, the heartland right. of biblical archaeology. Okay, that's a fair, that's very much a fair point. This we should also point out that the dates of these these artifacts are more iron one than iron two. We're talking about earlier than the iron two period, right? Well, no, tenth, these are ninth, no, these are 10th and 9th. Tenth, tenth they're 10th. Tenth. Okay, they're 10th. So they're very early I, Iron two. Okay. Yeah, is 10th and Mozart's yeah, right. You're right. You're absolutely right. Okay. And, you know, and yes, it's fine. It's great for the pages of Bar. It's great for the overall discussion. It's great for the popular popularity of the field and bringing people in and all of that stuff. But... You know, the level of scholarship and the fact is people just, you know, these the people who published these things turned it out on a dime. Certainly, certainly they, they published faster and furiously than I've ever been known to. So I, I can't say anything about this. But both of those articles can be deconstructed in, you know, five seconds flat because they all have internal inconsistencies about what they say about, you know, uh, uh, statuary and, uh, and cult in the late Bronze Age and the Iron Age one and the Iron Age two, when stuff is coming out and they leave out a lot of stuff, which is all to be expected. But, and that's, I guess, sort of my point is, is that yes, it's good for popularization, but I honestly think that the audience to whom this is intended would be, would enjoy it just as much and be better well served if it was a little bit more, um, you know, 
if they were if the articles were put together a little bit better okay uh, and and they don't it, it all didn't have to come out in you know in, in two months and that's the thing that happened in the first iteration of biblical archaeology you know somebody you know something would be found at Telbate Mersum and Albright would immediately write an article about it and biblical archaeologists would immediately, you know, put it into print and it would become this whole big cause celeb without any of the, you know, necessary steps behind it. And like we can actually, let me bring this up now, because one thing that these articles on these, on these dopey little heads never, never really talked about was, and probably someone should, is, well, you know, maybe, maybe a few of these little God's heads and I think the word pinched, as you've used several times, Alex, is very is a very good, very good adjective. Were were made at precisely the time that we now know that high priests are getting stoned. So you know that seemed, that seems like a really good segue into the Arad Temple stuff. That's true. And the Arad Temple stuff came out in a whole different way. But think about how the Arad Temple material about the fact that there's you know big blobs of cannabis on these on these altars that came out in a much more you know kind of dispassionate analytical right. and uh, clear but also highly popularized way right. right and and that seems to me this the articles that the that the uh, times of israel and haaretz articles were based on were all very scholarly and then the newspapers came in and like newspapers they do whatever they want right but but the stuff on the Arad cannabis was was great. It was really right. well done in every way. Right. And so we're saying that th this this VAR presentation is putting the cart before the horse or the horse. And also, the it's just like yes, there's one side. As I said at the very beginning, you know, they take these two very extreme positions. One is is that this is the head of Yahweh, and you know we have a type now. We have five examples of the head of Yahweh. And the other is that that's ridiculous. Right. When obviously, I think it goes without saying that the reality is somewhere in between these two extreme positions. Right. The other thing is playing against expectation. And, and we sort of discussed this before. You know, shouldn't we expect depictions of Yahweh? Of course we should, right? No one brought up the fact that, you know, Yahweh's name is mentioned on inscriptions, which before inscriptions like Kintilla Dejrud were found, everybody anticipated, oh, we'll never, you know, Yahweh will never be mentioned. Right. But whoa, no, then we found, you know, then they discovered Kintilla Dashrud, and not only is Yahweh mentioned, but it's pretty clear his consort is mentioned. We apologize for the technical difficulties. Rest assured, we're going to have our intern flogged. Now we're back. And we were talking about um, the, 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 the expectations. expectations, right. In our, in our second hour of, of broadcast. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm trying to kind of set the timing for this. So now it's 417. Okay. okay. Um, let's, let's move on from expectations and let's get to popular culture. And again, this is in the realm of, if, of what was missed in the article. Firstly, they keep referring to this God as having a flat top, which for, which for people of a certain age, Mm -hmm. which Alex and I are, I, all I can think of is the Dick Tracy uh, uh, enemy yeah. laptop. Yeah. yeah. So that was a great missed opportunity. 
and <laughs> and I and I think that that's that's where there should be more room for you know thinking about this in terms of popular culture of the of the Iron Age. Oh, that's that, good. That instead of making such a, like you know they immediately five five examples of something are found and immediately you have a type and it and you and, know, it, and it represents a god and it represents a god you know which it, and again I, i'm saying it may well represent a god i'm i'm all for the big gray area so but yeah so we have a type and we have a god um as opposed to we have expressions of popular culture yeah. Uh, and that this popular, which people talk about, they usually refer to it as something other than popular culture. They'll call it vernacular or something like that, um, in which you don't really have types and you don't necessarily have firm categories. And you have a lot of human agency, which the new biblical archaeology and biblical archaeologists of the modern era all, all love to talk about human agency. Whereas we were, again, we're processual. We came from the generation of processual archaeologists in which, you know, there was no human agency. Things just happened. Things just happened. There were big, long, you know, historical impulses. We needed to, somebody needed to eat. Therefore, yes. things yeah. happened. Right. But, but this is just, you know, this is just good old popular culture. Right. And, it's well, just, and, and in fact, there are, you know, there may only be five five examples of of this flat top guy with dots, but there are hundreds and hundreds of examples from a very very slightly later period of pillar figurines of right. ladies yeah. with you know enormous chests um, and a particular kind of headgear and is she a goddess? People used to say that is she some sort of votive? People sometimes say that is she just you know, popular kind of kind of image who you know sort of looks like I don't know familiar familiar older women or women of birthing characteristics in your community, but right. But also at the same time as those are the ever popular horse and rider figurines, right, from the second half of the Iron Age, and they could be anything from a god, and I'm open to that interpretation to, you know, like, like, I don't know, like Pokemon figures that everybody has one to, to play with um, or anything in between. Um, and that these represent, oh, you know, we all want to be this guy riding on the horse. Maybe he's a king, maybe, maybe he's a hero, maybe he's just nothing, but, um, but um, there you have it. So there, we could see a development from these few early Iron II horse and rider figurines uh, to, uh, to later Iron Age horse and rider figurines. And I think that's something that also was not really talked about in what we're reading, at least not yet. And, um, but the flat topped, the flat headed images are really not associated. And that's the problem that people pointed out. They're really not clearly associated with these horse and rider figurines. Okay, but, but maybe it is a new type. You know, people have been digging very assiduously for 150 years. It's true. We have lots of different types of stuff from all different periods and figurines, but it's, it's not as if we know all the types. And maybe this is just a type that hasn't turned up before, hasn't been identified before. It's not, you know, gorgeous. <laughs> it's not a gorgeous piece of art. Right. Um, and uh, been misidentified or there are a few more around and, uh, or, or 
or it is genuinely new and there are only five examples. Right, uh, and, and the fact that it comes from these, you know, that it doesn't come from Jerusalem. Right. But, but that it does come from Judah, you know, that also factors in. Right. Enough I'm, of Jerusalem has been, it has been churned over so that if we're going to, you know, that, that some of these could have come to light and, and none of them have. So, yeah, the, these are people outside of Jerusalem. These are, these are the non-elite, right? They're not part of the scribal administrative system in Jerusalem. And, I'm just uh, fascinated by this kind of hubristic attitude that we know so much about everything, that anything new that turns up <laughs> has to be yes. so, um, you know, so out there that mm -hmm. it is immediately divine. Right. <laughs> Literally and figuratively. Literally and, right. and figuratively. Right. right. Yeah, that's a really important point. But one, what, but one of the nice things about archaeology is that after, and I'll put it in quotes, biblical archaeology, end quote, has been around for 140 years, give or take, that we can still find new things, that we can still talk about new things, that there's still so much that we don't know, even if we think we do, but there's still a lot of newness. No, but I think, right. Well, yes, but that's on us. And this is what we've talked about before. We don't know a lot. And if we take what we do know and remove the pure speculation, we know even less. Right. So right. That's, true. that's part of the whole sort of, that's sort of missing. And it is this hubristic element that we become stunned when there's new things. We talked about this with the soap factory. It's like, oh my God, they're making soap. Right. It's like, oh my God, yes, they're making soap. Of course they're making soap. <laughs> they're making all sorts of things. And we only know a very, very small amount of what they're making. But, right, we, right. But, but when it hits, it hits in such a, you know, but it reflects, it really just reflects society. And it reflects the fact that we have so many media outlets that need content. Right. And, well, and that's really all it reflects is right. the desperate need for content. Well, it reflects that, but I also think, um, and this comes back to something you were saying before that, that um, because of where it's been published, and I have absolutely no problem with BAR, I like BAR, uh, it's it, it, the sensationalist aspect, because this is meant for the public, is, is emphasized. And one thing that I have said, and I think I said it in print in BAR a long time ago, is um, there's nothing wrong with sensationalism to a point, especially because sensationalism yields funding. So well, um, is, that, is that just a presumption, or do we actually know that? I don't think, I think we, really we kind know of that. know it. I think we, I don't know that it's been studied formally in a peer review format. However, I think there are definite correlations between talking about things openly in forums that are understandable by the public and um, funding that comes in for archaeology. I think that's a huge untested assumption. So for, for decades and decades, everybody assumed that prominent sports programs at universities uh, um, and especially winning seasons in prominent, on prominent, in prominent universities led to increase in funding. And then a bunch of economists did a million studies and they went, oh, no, it doesn't. It doesn't lead to any increase in funding at the university. It only leads to an increase in funding of the athletic department. And I think this falls into the same thing. I don't think people are saying, oh, they found the face of God. They found, they found you know, or in, in you know, Maradona's case, they found the hand of God. Um, and now we're going to give money to find more, you know, heads of God. I, I just don't think it works that way. 
Because if it worked that way, then prominent excavations that are uncovering extraordinary things uh, would have no trouble uh, raising funds. And I'm not going to name anybody because it's, but there are very, very important excavations that have found extraordinary finds that, that are not getting, that still have How well are those finds known though to the public? Oh, they're, very, they're very well known. I'll, right. tell you, I'll tell you off the air. Uh, yeah, they're, they're really well known. So okay. I'm not convinced of that at all. I'm con okay. What I am convinced is that it helps Bar, that it helps Bar fund their summer programs and their cruises and their, and, their, and their treks and their guides. And I think it helps all of that. And that's fine. I think there, even if, again, studies haven't been done, it's true. So even if there aren't direct correlations, I think the interest in archaeology among the public is what drives, I think it always comes back to money. I think, I think uh, well, popularity and money are always linked. And now, to be fair, this kind of public interest in archeology span with a particular biblical bent goes back um, to at least the 1840s and 1850s. And so that's what, 150, 170 <laughs> years already. And, 300 years for all we know. <laughs> The, the, the decipherment of flood tablets and, and things. Right, and the excavation um, of sites like Nineveh mentioned in the Bible. Right. But right. what... And Troy. So this, this um, translates into, broadly speaking, public awareness and public interest. Um, sensational, some of it is, is sensationally presented, some of it isn't. But what does that public interest translate into it itself. Uh, maybe, maybe there's, there's uh, public involvement in terms of, I don't know, following the news and um, membership in organizations and subscriptions. And maybe people go to go on excavations in order because they become interested and they pursue these things. But it's very difficult, as we said, to quantify these things. And maybe people do give, give some money. Maybe some philanthropist that we're not thinking of got interested this this way but i can think of several okay but but what a, so so that's all a kind of net good what about the where would we be in the absence of this this kind of uh, publicity and i look at um you know there there have been big discussions in north american archaeology over the last 20 years and you know x percent 90 percent a very large percent of of north american archaeology is salvage work it's rescue work it's contract work it's uh it's you know highways it's oil fields it's um you know military bases it's it's skyscrapers you know all this kind of all this kind of stuff almost none of that reaches reaches the public almost none and there's a real perception within north american archaeology that they have a kind of public relations problem and um they they can't they have a problem reaching out people don't know what's going on and and you know wherever you are in north america you're no more than 100 miles from some kind of excavation there should be a dig a shovel test pit for a day program. 
should be. <laughs> you can go into the middle of New Hampshire under a under a high tension wire and <laughs> dig a shovel test pit, and then you know go to the bar and uh, say you did a little archaeology. That's right. That's a great idea. And, and that's that's ninety seven percent of what it is in in North America, which is fine. You know, it's it's good stuff. It has to be done, but. You know, people people aren't aware, and when then when people become aware, so you know, some news stories that comes out that oh, you know, this these sites are going to be destroyed by highways <clears throat> or development or what have you. Um, people are surprised, and they they are less involved. They're less passionate. Um, voters, electors, uh, you know, city council people. This, this sort of thing. So my argument has been for a long time that publicity really does matter and that public awareness really does matter, even if it's not terribly quantifiable because it collapses the distance that people feel between themselves and their, their sites or sites in their vicinity and becomes more, more real and Okay, maybe the face of God is is a kind of unique level of of intimacy that is being promoted. Um, but maybe it's better that than like, oh, you know, what does it matter if you blow up these places? <laughs> oh, the opposite. <laughs> that that ended on a real bang. I didn't really quite see where that was going, <laughs> but now I do. You know. <laughs> It's the dichotomy between caring and uncaring. <laughs> and, you know, they meet around the back in the unity of opposites. Ooh. Well, I have no response to that. I mean, okay, it's true. I, I, think, uh, I think that's a perfect way to end. I agree. All right, so we'll, we'll just get this message out to our colleagues in all parts of the world, calling all <laughs> seven continents. Well, again, to go back to Dick Tracy, we can just use our Apple Watches to That's right. some kind of all-points bulletin. I'm not having that thing on my wrist, you know, measuring my heartbeat. Um, but get your stories out there. Tell your stories, you know. Turn to the person next to you. Tell your loved ones. Tell your family. Tell your local news organizations. Write the stories yourself and right. get this them is, out there. Yeah, this is the end of the Enlightenment. What, what started off with uh, in whatever 13th, 14th century Italy is now ending with the West in which every possible personal thread and personal self-aggrandizement and achievement has to be gotten out. And that's, that's sort of going to be the, the coda to the enlightenment. And what comes next, who knows? But who knows? Uh, I, I am not as, as optimistic as you are, Alex, that that's the that that's a good thing or the goal, because I think that's a that's a, a a revelatory, you know, sense of self achievement. Well, I think there's a difference context bereft of context. Right. Well, well there's, don't I think forget there's about a difference between Instagramming your your breakfast. But that's what it is, though. It's Instagramming. I'm sure the I'm sure the Godhead or the you know the head of God is all over Instagram. I'm sure that's. But that's Probably. you can't separate that out. Because but 
and this doesn't fully apply to this face of God example, but community archaeology is, of course, a big thing. Of course, you want to involve the community. Of course, you want the community to feel connected to the place where they're currently living. And that's been the trend for 15, 20 years. But do and you really want us to deconstruct that? Because we that, really that would be a whole other podcast. Yeah, yeah. But, but we, I, I think that can be deconstructed so quickly that it's a very nice thing and it's very important. But the intellectual foundations of community archaeology are, are a little bit... Well, I, I happen to agree with you. However, I think most archaeologists would not, you know, would be all for, are all for oh, community Of course they are. They're all for anything. Right. They're all for anything to get their story out. They're all for go. anything to make it, to make their personal achievement a global rec a globally recognized event and why because and they want to be able to continue to do it why because they want to be able to continue to do it and they think that the more people who know about it some donor will be attracted some donor will hear about it um will read about it and will want to give money to them or well, they have a donor in mind and they show the newspaper article to the donor and the donor gets all revved, revved up I, I think we can interpret um you know, community archaeology, either in broadly speaking, materialist or even Marxian terms, or in in Freudian versus Jungian terms. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but barring barring that, I, I think the real I, I want to focus us back on on the face okay. on the face of, the face of God, and and is this something that needs to be told, and what? And, and yes, it's, a, it's a, a very interesting little find and it's a very interesting little interpretation and has strengths and weaknesses. But what do we need to know? Who needs to know? Why should we know? And, and I think that that's, that question writ large is the existential challenge that archaeology faces every day. We have to get up every day and convince ourselves that it, it matters. Right, well that's, and that, that of course is the situation, not just with archeology, span but that's the situation with humanities. That's what the humanities face. Every day waking up, and instead of having the, at least the very narrow community of academia realize how important the humanities are without needing to be told, that's but that clearly isn't happening. But that's, that's what happens with the humanities. We wake up and we have to justify this whole enterprise first and foremost to ourselves, and then to our own audience, and then to, you know, this huge morass of administrators and the public. And of course, that's a completely specious way to go forward, because there's no, A, there's no point in it, and B, at least within the community of academia itself, it should be fully recognized what the value is. But that's the case we find ourselves in, you're right. I just, so what else are we gonna I, do? I just think that this, I, yeah, no, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I won't dig myself into a bigger, into a bigger hole because that would be what an archeologist does. <laughs> oh, that might be a good ending point right there. <laughs> on the other hand, no, that is, <laughs> well, on the other hand, I think the most important thing to come out of this is the fact that nobody drew any parallel between, you know, crappy little figurines of God and cannabis at Arad. I think that's really 
the, the biggest loss. If you want to spin a yarn, if you want to create a narrative, if you want to get the public involved, and a public that's under the age of, you know, 65, then, then that would have been the way to go. Well, that's true. So it's a good thing we've done these podcasts <laughs> on both of these topics. It's bringing, in, it's bringing in, you know, disparate threads to create a new synthesis. That's right. So that our listener <laughs> will, will get the connections. Exactly. Exactly. I, just, well, I, I want to add one more thing. This is, <laughs> this, is not the first, this is not the first time that a depiction of Yahweh has been purportedly discovered in the Holy Land. I forget how long ago, but quite a few years at this point, one of our colleagues found a shirt in some storeroom in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and said, this is a depiction of the god Yahweh. And it, it was also a flat top. If I remember correctly, it was, it was two triangles. Uh, and so the, the top of this purportedly Yahwehistic head was a flat top. Um, I'm not sure if it was ever published, but I know it was presented at an ASOR meeting. That's interesting. I was just thinking about the Cantilado Drew drawing, the one that's the best figurine, most likely, that was sometimes sort of associated with Yahweh. That also is a flat top. Right. Ooh, yeah. now we're on to something. So maybe, maybe he, we should get back to the whole brachycephalic and, and whatever the other. Well, yeah, the... <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Well, the, the other thing, but I don't know, maybe you can cut off the recording before this, uh, is... <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I think, I, think, I think the goal now should be 24-hour coverage. <laughs> I don't think we should be self-censoring. That, that would not follow the dictum already established that we That's have to true. get everything out Well, no, I'm changing the topic a little bit to, to oh, okay. iconography because you know how much I like objects. And when, when I first <laughs> saw Miss Melink would, would be proud. She absolutely would be. When I first saw the, the um, new figurine, the Kiafa one, um, and then when I saw the um, Moza ones, I was immediately reminded of a Canaanite tradition. If you look at, and you should all look this up, you should all Google this, um, Middle Bronze Age Jericho um, anthropomorphic vessel. And you will come across this, this face, which is very much in the same style of the features of, um, of um, what we're talking about. Not identical, the eyes are sort of, the, the clay has been carved away before the eyes were inserted, but the shape of the lower part of the face is actually very similar. You mean and the famous I, one with the little, with the beard? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 uh, the resemblance? The jar. The jar, right, yeah, right, he's a jar, exactly. Right. He or she is a jar. Um, right. And um, if you compare that to, to some of these Moza figurines, um, you'll see that, I think anyway, that there is something similar um, in the sort of elongated yet skinny uh, chin line. And um, again, the eyes are not identical, but similar. And this ends in a flat open jar head as opposed to a flat top. But um, I think maybe there's something to be said for a continuation of a particular Canaanite tradition of how to make a human form. I could be way off base because it's been a long time since I've done art history seriously, but, um, but that is the first thing that, that I thought of when, when I saw it. Right, um, deconstruct that whole idea of done art history seriously. 
<laughs> in our 27th hour yeah. broadcast. Right, exactly. I mean, if you guys can talk about your training in the new archaeology, and I guess my training maybe five years after your training We're was, scientists. Or less, was um, less focused on the new archaeology because we were already in the in the um, post-processual beginnings of post-processualism. Well, we, it was people like us who basically killed the post-processual oh. <laughs> Thank you for your contribution, yeah. yeah. And, and Alex has just pointed out that this other uh, shirt illustrating Yahweh was published. It was published in 2009. Right. Where'd you point that out? I just sent it to you. What, through email? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one uses email anymore, please. Well, I just didn't have it open at this particular moment. And now I'm looking. I have to read the article again. I really don't know the argument here. But he looks like, you know, he looks like a carrot. Uh, <laughs> right. And he's got a unibrow. Or is that which just was, a wrinkle on his forehead? It's hard to which say. Which was a very popular look in the Iron Age. <laughs> oh, I'm there he is. Right, right, this thing. Regardless, it would fit within the type if one wanted to. Yeah. If one, if one wanted to really, you know, narrow down a type, I think you could, you could add this, this one. I think you're right, if there is, in fact, a type. But... And I guess, I guess the, lesson, the lesson is right, because this never got picked up by Barr, as far as I know, and was never made into a big cause celeb, because this just immediately got published and thus buried in, uh, right. in the annals of uh, dense, turgid prose. Well, so, and the only reason we're having this discussion is that um, it, we, we noticed this, this new discovery, um, or new-ish discovery, in a popular, in a popular uh, venue. And there you go. to the benefit of our listener, <laughs> <laughs> to the to the immense amusement of ourselves, we're having this discussion. So we're advancing the public good um, this way. So that's right. Yeah, we've yeah. been advancing the public yeah, good yeah, for yeah. over an hour now, and that's really what it's all about. Yay us! <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if we don't if we don't say yay us, who who will really? Right. Well, clearly exactly. no one. I mean, we know the answer. Right. Well, we have our listener. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. and I think you can stop this recording at any time. <laughs> maybe, maybe this is a good time. <laughs> I think you're going to actually have to really cut and paste this one a little bit. Well, I'm glad we could clear that up with laser-like precision. Notwithstanding, our theme music was composed by Eris Dessel. And as always, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Big Kahuna Burger. To get in touch, click on the links or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.